So, about a month ago now, I had the privilege of standing here at the start of Lent and reminding you that the aim of Lent is Easter. And we've had this, this month or so now of, of getting ready, preparing our hearts, our souls, our spirits, our minds, our strength for Easter. And now here we are on Palm Sunday. And are you ready? Are you ready? Because if not, well... I've got one more Sunday to get you ready, to, to invite you to fix your eyes on Jesus as he enters Jerusalem. To see him, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So, this morning I invite you to see Jesus and I have some C's to share with you. The first C, this is for you Sam, I know you appreciate my alliteration. C is for cult. Jesus came riding on a donkey, on a foal, a colt, not even a full-grown strongest donkey that he could find, but just a little, 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 little colt. And it's this odd little scene that I've been thinking about, and I, I still don't really understand it. Is Jesus stealing a colt? Or has he had a word beforehand with the owners of this cult? Um, maybe the last time he was in Jerusalem. I, I'm really not sure. I mean, if I was to say to Isaac, um, okay, let's, you're just, we're going to head into Liverpool tomorrow and um, you're going to find there a car that's never been driven. And um, just, you know, ask the person standing by it, I need the keys, the Lord needs it. My daddy's preaching. <laughs> Um, I, I'm not sure what would happen. Um, or, or possibly it's not a, an administrative a thing that Jesus has achieved the last time he was in Jerusalem celebrating a festival when he had a word with the owners of this cult farm or whatever. May, maybe it is this prophetic thing. He was praying that morning and the Father spoke to him. Maybe the Holy Spirit came down and, and gave him a little visionary uh, insight that, you know, this is the cult that I've prepared. Who knows? I, I don't know. And... I'm pretty sure that nowhere else in this gospel or the other gospels does it tell us. Although feel free to go home this week and try and find that verse that explains it all that I missed in my preparation. Um, perhaps the point is just that as disciples, we don't always understand everything that Jesus commands us to do. But when he commands us to do something, we just have to obey. Even if it seems odd, even if it doesn't quite make sense... When you have that conviction in your spirit that Jesus has told you what to do, then you have to step out in faith and do it. Sometimes it will seem absurd, but <laughs> uh, I'm afraid that being a Christian doesn't mean you'll never look foolish. It doesn't mean that everything you do always makes more sense. It doesn't even mean that every time you think God has told you something to do that you've definitely got it right. But it does mean that God will be with you and he will bless you even in the midst of foolishness. Um, and even in coming on this cult, Jesus himself is, is setting him up, himself up to look a little bit foolish. That The cult is, is sort of double-sided because in some ways, and, and the, the kids' video brought this out, in some ways um, to come in on a cult was to say very clearly, actually... I'm not just a, a tourist coming to Jerusalem, but um, although I'm sure there probably were people riding on their donkeys, but, but especially as people began to shout, 
Wait, is this the king? It is the king. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes. This is the king. Coming in on a cult was a fulfillment of prophecy. In Zechariah 9 verse 9, um, the prophet had, had talked about how the Messiah, when he came, would come on a donkey, on a cult, the foal of a donkey. And there are some prophecies that Jesus had no control over. The fact that they were fulfilled is just the supernatural providence of God. This, however, is not one of them. Jesus very deliberately set himself in the context of the coming Messiah by sitting on this cult. And so one aspect of Jesus coming on the cult is that Jesus is is saying, here I am. I am the Messiah that you, Israel, have been waiting for. And they had been waiting for a long time. Zechariah's prophecy was several hundred years before. I'm afraid I don't have the exact year BC that it was. Um, But it, it was hundreds of years that Israel had been waiting for their Messiah. Zechariah made the prophecy after Israel had returned from exile And there they were trying to rebuild the temple, facing opposition from the people who were already in the land, um, who didn't want there to be any political problems between whichever empire was ruling them at the time. And there were several before Jesus finally arrived. There were um, the Babylonians, the... um, the, The the Greeks, the Romans, um, who have I missed between the Babylonians and the Greeks? There we go. Bonus points from for whoever can fill in the historical chronology. Um, But Israel had been waiting. They'd been waiting for God to restore their kingdom. Like in the glory days of, of David and Solomon when their temple had been the most glorious and most famous in the land. And kings and queens had come to see the temple of the God of Israel. But those days were long gone. And yet the people of Israel still believed that their God was the true God. Not just some national idol. But the God who had created the heavens and the earth, who had promised that he would send a Messiah to save their nation. And not just their nation, but the whole world, all the nations. Although sometimes maybe some of them forgot some of that. Um, And Jesus, in coming on a cult, he was saying, here I am. I am the Messiah that you've been waiting for. But a cult also is just a humble little beast of burden. And he was coming at a time when the Romans were ruling. And um, not in any of the videos we've seen this morning, but there are some uh, visualizations of this that show that contrast. You have Pilate, the Roman governor, coming in on his war horse and the Roman soldiers looking strong and mighty in their armor with their shields and their swords and their helmets shining in the sun and him coming on a... It's got to be white, doesn't it? This white war horse that he's coming... Yeah, you imagine it, the same as me. Um, Here he comes in on that horse. And then Jesus coming on a little donkey. The contrast is is not that impressive. And yet it's, it's because the story that Jesus is telling is not about power today. But it's about fulfillment of what God has done. And... And even, I mean, I was thinking about it just sitting here this morning. Actually, in our culture today, when um, the Queen of England, was it her coronation or royal wedding? Maybe both. I don't know. She didn't come in in the latest, greatest Rolls Royce or whatever. She came in in a horse-drawn carriage, didn't she? 
And okay, it's, you know, covered in gold or whatever. It's not exactly a humble cult that two of her servants have just possibly stolen or possibly prophetically uh, um, taken from someone's gate. It's, 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 you know, it's a little bit more fancy than that. But it's, there is something about tapping into the, the history that even now in our culture we have. These symbols, they're powerful, aren't they? And that's what Jesus was doing. Um, and, and so, you know... But, but it is, there are both things there. On the one hand, it is very humble coming just on a colt when Pilate and the Romans would have been riding their, their strong white war horses. Um, on the other hand, it's very bold. Not really humble at all. He's not just quietly coming into Jerusalem like he would have done basically every year of his life, remember. This is Jesus who was born in Bethlehem, but then his parents took him up to Jerusalem to be dedicated at the temple. And Simeon and Anna were there and they prophesy over him. And every year his parents would have taken him up. We don't hear all the stories, but when he's 12, there's the story. Now that he's a, a fully grown Jewish man, able to, maybe he has his bar mitzvah or whatever. And there he is um, staying in the temple after his family and the rest of the crowd from Nazareth have wandered back home. And his mother's allowed him out of his sight, possibly for the first time in 12 years. Okay, he's a grown-up, responsible boy now. I'm sure he'll be in the crowd with us. And then a, a day or so later, they look for him. They can't find him. And they have to run back to Jerusalem, search the whole city. And there he is, just talking about doing a Bible study with the rabbis in the temple. Mummy, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? No, son, I had no idea. I've been tearing my hair out. Um, and every year after that, he would have been at the temple celebrating the festivals. Passover especially, but the other ones too. Tabernacles and all, all the Jewish festivals that God had commanded the people to keep. But this time, he's not coming just to celebrate the festival. This time... He's coming as the Messiah, coming on a colt. Can you see him in your mind's eye? Jesus, the Christ, the one that history has been waiting for. The one that, in now for his second coming, we are still waiting for, longing for. And he will come again. And in this week, we get to remember that he has come already. And here we are in that historical tension, the now and the not yet. And our role is not to be Jesus coming in on the cult. Our role is to be like the disciples, taking off our coats, laying them on the cults, as the first couple of disciples, I guess, did, and then laying them on the ground before Jesus as the, the gathering crowd began to do. So there's a second C for you, the copes, or the cloaks. I don't mind. <laughs> uh, what have we got in my translation? Um, they found a colt, and they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road and I was thinking about how someone's someone's cloak or whatever someone wears even in our culture it says something about their their power their status their their wealth I mean we've talked about the contrast between the warhorse and the cult but even in talking about that I mentioned the Roman's armor and how that would have contrasted with just the the simple coats of Jesus followers 
But even amongst those cloaks, you would have been able to tell the, the wealthy person who had something made of the finest silk or, or whatever it was, um, and someone poorer. But, but as they took off their cloaks and laid them down before Jesus and just had, you know, possibly not their hearts on their boxer shorts, as you would have seen, I'm sure, if it had been in the cartoon, um, but, but just a simple white garment. And as I was thinking about this, I was reminded that Jesus, well, this, this story, it's not just reflecting Jesus coming in as the Messiah, like the prophets had spoken of, but actually, as the disciples take off their cloaks, as the presence of God in Jesus comes into the city, it's like David, when the Ark of the Covenant came into Jerusalem. Some of you may find that too obscure an Old Testament reference. So let me tell you, the Ark was just a box, except not just any old box. It was a box made of gold in which were the Ten Commandments. And it was the box that, that symbolized God's throne. As, well, after God had brought Israel out from the wilderness... They came with various uh, bits of gold that the Egyptians had said, please leave, we'll pay you, just go. We don't want you anymore. Your God is causing too much trouble for us with all the plagues. Um, and then they'd gone to Mount Sinai and Moses had met with God and God had given Moses instructions about how to build the tabernacle and, and particularly the Ark of the Covenant was this box covered in gold that the priests were to carry only, only, only the priests, mind you, and they weren't even allowed to touch it. They were only allowed to, to carry it with rods that went through the golden hoops on the box. And then whenever God called them to move forward, because his presence was with them visibly in this cloud of glory, fire by, well, fire by night and cloud by day. And the priests would kind of follow along this, Pillar, try and make sure that the ark was as close to the, 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 the cloud of God's presence as it could be. And, and they followed it through the wilderness for 40 years before God finally brought them into the promised land. And the first thing he did was send the priests with the ark into the river Jordan and the, the water stopped and the people were able to pass through the Jordan. That's the ark that we're talking about. And, and yet, of course, the story of following God is that there are these moments of glory and then moments of humans failing miserably. And so Israel enters the promised land, but do they follow God faithfully? Not really. And so um, the ark ends up being forgotten. Well, and um, the, the, the reverence due to God is, is not really kept. And so God lets the ark be taken into exile. The Philistines come up to battle against Israel and the Israelites think, well, we've got God on our side. We can't lose. These, these are swords, aren't they? God will certainly fight on our side. Um, but God's not like that. He's not interested in just blessing whatever we put our hands to. He's interested in teaching us to follow him. And he lets the ark be taken into exile. And... Meanwhile, the people of Israel don't really get it. They ask for a king and God says, fine, let them have a king. And Saul becomes their king for a little while. He kind of follows God, but not really. And then David says, no, I'm going to choose another king after my own heart. David becomes king. Sorry, long tangent. And, but David, when he becomes king, when he finally enters Jerusalem after having been king in Hebron for seven years, he hears that the, the place where the ark of God has ended up, and it's just been forgotten about for years. He hears that it's, it's experiencing blessing. They're actually looking after the ark, and God is blessing the house of 
Obed-Edom or, or some strange Old Testament name. And David says, hang on, the ark shouldn't just be sitting in some random guy's house. It should be at the very center of our nation. We should be worshipping God with all our hearts, minds, souls and strength. Because this is God we're talking about. And so he has the ark of God brought into Jerusalem. It takes him a couple of goes before he realizes how holy God's presence is and how it has to be done. But second time lucky, he um, has the Levites carrying God's ark on as, as they were supposed to do according to the law. And they bring it into Jerusalem. And David is there worshipping with all his strength. He had been a shepherd boy out in the fields just praising God. And now God has made him king. And he's still unashamedly praising God. And although he's now got his crown on and his kingly robes. He takes them all off and throws them on the ground before the ark of God. And the ark of God enters into Jerusalem. And for 33 years of David's reign, although the sacrificial system continued with the old tabernacle um, by Shiloh, the ark of God was simply surrounded by singers in the tabernacle of David in Jerusalem. This glorious demonstration of the, the, well, the 33-year life of Jesus that would make it possible for us all to have direct access to God's presence. And yet, David's wife, Michal, was offended by the fact that her king, her husband, and she was the daughter of Saul, a princess by birth as well as by marriage. Um, she was ashamed. David, don't you realize when you, you're practically naked, although he's still wearing his simple white undergarment, um, aren't you ashamed of yourself? And David says, no, I'm not ashamed. And, and here as Jesus enters Jerusalem, there's that same dynamic. Rich, poor, uh, whoever they are, they're taking off their, their robes and laying them down before Jesus. And all just coming in simplicity to let the presence of God enter the city. Are we willing to do that this week? And not just this week, but, but in all of our lives, to not let ourselves be identified by how much status we have or don't have. And so it can even be weirdly backwards, can't it? Where you're proud, not of the fact that you're rich because you're not rich, but you're proud of the fact that you're poor because those rich people, well, they've obviously got rich by being corrupt and deceitful. But we poor people, we're honest, aren't we? And so we're proud of our poverty. But the point is that none of that matters, whether you're rich or poor. The point is that Jesus is really the only one that matters. And then what matters is our attitude towards him. Which brings us to the, the third C, the chorus. The, the, the whole multitude that comes together rejoicing and praising God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is the song that we're invited to join in with. The salvation song. Like John's poem was about how there, there is this chorus of praise. All of creation cries out and will we join it? Will we join it? Or... Like some of the Pharisees in the crowd, will we complain? 
where we say, oh, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, in the cartoon, there was a very stark contrast, wasn't there? The Pharisees were obviously the bad guys. But I'm afraid to tell you that in real life, it's a little bit more complicated. And as you try and understand what God commands us to do in his scriptures, and as you try and put it into practice and try and not just apply it to yourself, but occasionally maybe the people in your small group say, you know what, I think, um, you know, you're doing something that I just don't want to, but I need to challenge you about because God says something else. And they might say to you, who do you think you are? Are you a Pharisee? And you'll be misunderstood and you might look foolish and you might even be wrong. But that friction, iron sharpening iron, as we tread on each other's toes and offend each other because we're trying to be a little bit less offensive to God than we were yesterday, is healthy. It might even make us holy. Probably slowly. Um, so, you know, maybe some of the, well, maybe the takeaway from this sermon this morning is that sometimes... You need to be a Pharisee or at least risk being a Pharisee in order to be faithful to what God has called us to do. Some of you will be called to be a prophet like John the Baptist, maybe in the wilderness, but calling people to repent. It's not always just good news and nice things and God loves you and oh wait, there's a little bit more to the message than that. But that's definitely there. Um, and the, yeah. <laughs> joining in the heavenly chorus of worship to Jesus sometimes means joining in the prophetic cry of calling the world to repentance. But also sometimes it means resisting those people who say, oh, you know, that's really not appropriate right now. Um, and then maybe other Christians who think that your zealous desire to worship wholeheartedly is really not appropriate right now. Yes, God calls us to do things, but right now, is it wise? Is it the right time? And you might just not be able to stop yourself, and that might well be right. I don't know exactly what context I'm talking about that you're in this week, or even that you'll be in next month. All I know is that if you believe in Jesus, God will be with you, and he will never leave you, and he will never forsake you. And Jesus has, as a human, been in all those different situations, being rebuked and rebuking, worshipping and being worshipped. No, you're not really going to be worshipped, but you might occasionally get a pat on the back and a well-deserved, well done. This morning, I want us to see Jesus on the cold as we lay our cloaks down, as we join in with the chorus of creation, as we... Consider whether the complaint of others around us is justified or whether we just need to steal our flinty foreheads and ignore it. But bless them, bless them as they criticize us. Um, the final C, though, that we come to, and I wasn't actually expecting this um, when I was asked to preach on the triumphal entry, but it's included in the passage. Jesus crying over Jerusalem. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. 
For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground. They will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. And historically, that happened to Jerusalem. This was about 30 or 33 perhaps AD. No, about 30 AD. Um, I don't think they got the date quite right when Jesus was born. Uh, about 30 AD when Jesus enters into Jerusalem and the crowds worship on Palm Sunday, but by Good Friday they've changed their minds and they're shouting crucify him. And he's crucified but rises again. And the movement of believers begins to grow as they tell others that this Jesus who died was crucified but is now risen do we need to pause? No, keep going. Keep going. The, the movement begins to multiply. Um, but for the most part, Israel, God's chosen people, they didn't understand. They didn't believe. How could it be that the promised Messiah that they'd been waiting for for hundreds of years, that that promised Messiah could be crucified? Didn't it say in the Bible, in the scriptures, that anyone hanged on a tree was cursed by God? How could the blessed Messiah be cursed by God? And yet the, the logic is that someone needed to take the curse in order for us sinners to be blessed. And only God himself in the flesh could really do that. And so it was done. But, but 40 years later, another person rises up and says, I think I'm the Messiah and has a few more followers and they're willing to fight the Romans this time. However, he wasn't the Messiah. <laughs> And the Romans crushed them and Jerusalem was destroyed. And Jesus' words there were fulfilled. Oh, Jerusalem, if you had only known that this was the moment. But for the most part, people didn't know. They didn't get it. They didn't receive Jesus. They missed it. Now the question for each of us is... Will we miss it? Hopefully not, and maybe that's why you're here this morning, but it's always worth asking, have you truly laid everything down, taken off all the cloaks in your heart and laid them down before God and say, here I am, just take me as I am. Messed up sinner, broken person, but Jesus, I believe that you came to save sinners like me. And if you're able to say that simple prayer, then Hosanna and Hallelujah. And you get to be grafted into the body of Christ and, and actually an heir with Christ of the kingdom that will one day come in all of its fullness. But in the meantime, you're also given that commission to go into the cities of the world, Liverpool and London and other places that don't begin with L. Um, Leeds. Oh, I don't know about that. No, Leeds too. But to all of the, the last, the least and the lost, to take the message of the Lamb who was slain. And in that message of the Lamb, there is... 
fullness of joy and life forevermore and joy, pure joy. The aim of Lent has been Easter and here we are at Easter and Easter is all about worshipping the lamb who was slain, letting that fire from heaven fall on your heart and, and consume every part of you with worship. And there's so much joy and there's so much freedom. But as you enter that place where Jesus is worshipped, there's, in a weird way, there's also heartbreak and and weeping. Because suddenly all of the the things that people put up as defences to hide the pain that hasn't been dealt with and those sins that they hoped no one would see, all those things fall away. And we can't pretend anymore. It doesn't matter if you're rich. You can't pay anyone to, to, to pray a salvation prayer for you. You've got to do that thing yourself. You can't pray someone else to come sweep up your heart. You've got to, well, you don't have to do it yourself. The Holy Spirit will come and flush out your mess for you. But, but you need to cooperate. So, God is calling us to be holy and when we finally become fully holy we will be oh so happy but in the process there will be a little bit of heartbreak both for ourselves as we look at ourselves and realize oh my goodness uh, I'm not quite the holy person that I thought I should be by now and also as we look at the world around and realize God loves these people. And I hardly know these people, but I love these people. But these people are not interested in talking about God or listening to any of the the good, glorious message of Jesus that if they only could know, and yet they think they know, and they think, well, it doesn't make sense, it's not true, why wouldn't you believe it? And yet, I cannot help but believe it, because I know it's true, and that tension, that tension... I think you know what I'm talking about. My time is up to try and explain it. So let me end with a prayer. Jesus, Lord Jesus, would you open the eyes of our hearts so that we can see you riding in on your colt, riding over our cloaks, riding to the cross, where you will conquer, conquer our sin, conquer our mess. Jesus, would you come? We claim you as our Christ. And we've tried to count the cost. Maybe we've not done our sums quite right, but basically you are of infinite value and everything that we have is pretty much worthless in comparison. So, Jesus, we choose you today. And we ask, Lord, for any, anyone in this room that hasn't yet chosen that they would know. For any parts of our hearts that aren't yet fully surrendered that they would be. And for any others that we know that they would come to know your truth, your beauty, your majesty. For their sake and for yours, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.